Our text for our sermon is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And actually we'll have many texts, but we'll start here and move through them. But let me read to you Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Now, I um, I think during, I, when I went to uh, do the wedding back in September, I read two, I usually don't do stuff like this, but I read two 200-page books about Christ, and so I just sat there and I read, and I was on the airplane, <laughs> and so uh, I got a few sermons while I was on the airplane, and this is one of them. But I was reading about Jesus, and I was reading a whole bunch of books about some, some of it's kind of hard stuff. But this is some of the gleanings, and the Jason Bourne illustration doesn't come from the reading, but it's going to start the sermon. I don't know if any of you know the Jason Bourne trilogy, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Uh, many of you guys like action movies. I like the Bourne trilogy. The Bourne trilogy is about three movies about a guy named Jason Bourne, and Jason Bourne is an assassin who's been chosen or has chosen to be a particular person to protect American lives, as the older man says in the third movie. Jason Bourne, the first thing you do is you find out this guy, he's a, he's a great assassin. In fact, he's really, really good. But the problem with Jason is this. Every now and then, his humanity pops up. His conscience bothers him. And so we find him in the very first part of the movie, of the first show, first scene. He's lying face down with a little light beeping on his back. And a fishing boat full of men come by and they pick him up out of the water. They fish him out of the water. And so he wakes up and he does not know who he is. For three movies, the whole series is all about Jason Bourne trying to figure out who is he and where is he from. That is what the show is about. And so are all three. And, and as I was, you know, over all these years, I, I sat down and I started watching some commentary about the movies. And there's a man who did the movies, Paul Greengrass. He's the guy, the filmmaker. And as you listen to this guy give his commentary, you're watching the show, but you don't hear anything on the show. You hear him talking about the movies that he's made. And he's like an artist. He says the whole theory or the whole theme of Jason Bourne is to bring a person's heart rate up to 180 beats a minute and get you really into it. I mean, there's one guy that spends, that doesn't say a word for 17 minutes, but it's all just him. His name is Dinesh. Y'all know the shows? You know, Dinesh doesn't say a word, but he's all action. 
It's all action. It's action. It's action. It's action. And then all of a sudden he says every person knows that Jason, when he's wounded, he's going to have to take care of his wounds. Everybody knows that Jason needs to sit down and learn some things on the Internet. So he puts a pencil in his mouth and he starts typing and everything slows down. He stitches himself back together. He talks to the girl. He does things where things are slowing down. And this man says, you know, everybody has to have some downtime even in a movie. And during these times when everything is slowing down, it gives the filmmaker, the artist of filmmaking, it gives him an opportunity to fill in some backstory. It gives him an opportunity to share those tidbits to try to help us understand where this guy came from who's lying face down in the water and been fished out. And so he has some things begin to take place and we, before, the, before the heart rate gets built back up and goes back to 180 beats a minute, you're getting inf- information. You're getting some details about his past, some juicy things. And the same thing is true about Jesus. Jesus, he too has a backstory. And as we're going to see this morning, Jesus' backstory is what we might call out of this world. He, he, he's very different than you and me. He comes from outside of this world. And at Christmas time, we tend to think about the birth of Jesus. We think about Mary and Joseph. We think about, um, you know, three, three kings, but we don't really know if there were three. There might have been more, but we think there were at least three because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? We think about manger scenes, angels singing in chorus. We think about rejoice and sing. We think about, I think about, Pages 193 in the hymnal to about 232 or 233 in the hymnal. I can't wait till Christmas because I just go, ask Ben. Ben knows what I do at Christmas. I just go from one hymn to the next in the services. I just go from one. I left out 193 today because I thought that might be a little hard to sing. But here we are. What what do we learn from these birth narratives uh, in, in regard to Jesus' backstory? We know he was born, but what do we know about his backstory? Because he has a backstory. And I want to end fourth point today is going to be ending with some passages that Jesus uses about himself that maybe you haven't thought about that speak to his backstory and why he came. The first one is Matthew 1, 18 through 25, the Joseph account. This is the Joseph account that we just read. Joseph, he's betrothed to Mary. He, um, they're going to be married. They haven't come together yet, but he finds out before they come together that she is with child. And he, of course, how, how can anybody come to be with child apart from sin? And so this man's a righteous man. He's going to put Mary away secretly. He's very tender. He doesn't want to expose her before everybody. He's going to put her away secretly. But the but the, but the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him in a dream and tells him, I want you to take this woman to be your wife. She is not with child by ordinary generation. She's with child by an extraordinary generation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to marry her. I want you to be with her. I want you to take this child and name this child Jesus. He will be the one who saves his people from their sins. Matthew then adds, that Jesus comes in fulfillment of prophecy and he gives to us verse 23, which we read from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as we begin to think about 
these narratives, here's the first thing we learn. Jesus is supernaturally conceived. Jesus is called God with us. Jesus is going to be Savior of sinners. And God with us, what does that mean except when you think about God, do you ever think about God starting somewhere? God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. God was always. We're going to see that in a few minutes more than ever. But God, he comes in human flesh. He has a backstory. Before he ever came in human flesh, he was, he is, he always has been. This is getting to the backstory. We have the second person of the Trinity is going to come and put on human flesh, and he's going to be God with us. Jesus is coming from eternity into time and space to save sinners. Now, this brings us to the second account. The second account is in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now, I don't have time to read all of that, but I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. And if you want to follow along, or you can listen, but I'll read it, I'll read it where you can understand it. But in the Mary, this is what I'm going to call the Mary account. First, the Joseph account. Second, the Mary account. Jesus' birth is foretold to Mary by an angel named Gabriel. And so Gabriel comes to the city in Galilee named Nazareth to Mary. She's engaged to Joseph. We're getting the same terminology. He is of the descendants of David. And then this is what Gabriel says. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So the angel is telling Mary that she's going to have a child and how she's going to have this child and this child's going to be a son and she will conceive of this child by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be called just exactly what Joseph was told. Call his name Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be the son of the most high God. He's going to be the son of God. Again, here he is coming in human flesh to sit on David's throne. Second Samuel chapter 7, God gives David a promise. He's going to have somebody sitting on his throne forever. Here's the promise coming into fulfillment. This child will be born to Mary and to Joseph. This child is conceived of the Holy Spirit telling us again that this is something supernatural. This is something pre-existing before ever there was history and time. He comes and he will sit on his father David's throne forever. And he is deity and man, one person, God and man in one person forever. Now, nothing says this better to us than John chapter 1. So let's turn to John chapter 1 for a second. Now, if you go and you look at the uh, birth narratives, you find a birth narrative. You find the Mary account in Luke. You find the Joseph account in Matthew. In Mark, the words are the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that's it. In Mark, there's no birth narrative. Now, there's reasons. I won't tell you all the reasons why. But I think you could find a veiled reference to Jesus' birth if you wanted to look at the word beginning of the gospel. But most people say it's not there. It could be veiled. But when you get to John, there's one verse. 
There's one verse about Jesus' birth in John. It's in verse 14. Let me read it to you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and we saw or we beheld his glory, John says. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Notice the words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to this point, there's been given to us not a single name. We just hear the word. The word, the word, the word, the word. Who's the word? The word became flesh. Well, it's not a, it's not a thing. It's not an it. It's a person. This word is a person who puts on human flesh. And the word there, incarnated, means he, temp, he, he tabernacles, he tents among us. He dwells among us for a period of time. Who is this word? We're not given a name until, until verse 17. So you go back to verse 1. Here it is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld, we saw his glory. Go back to verse one. This is going to help us to have some light. John says, we, the word saw, the New American Standard gives the word saw in the 95 edition, but the best word is beheld. We beheld. What's that mean? It means I stopped and I took a look. It means I stopped and I scrutinized this person. John's saying, I saw this person. I evaluated this person. I saw when I saw this person, I saw glory. I saw something that captured my imagination and I'm never forgetting it. This is the, this is somebody begotten of God. This is really something. Who is this some per, this person? Look at verse one. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Let's be clear. The word, the word that we're talking about here existed before time began. He's always been. And then it says, and the word was with God. And so we have the word and we have God and they're with each other. The word with though speaks of the face to face relationship that the word has with God. Now, does that sound kind of like a trinity to you? So we have a face-to-face relationship going on between the Word. We don't know His name yet, and we have God. And then it says at the end, it says, and the Word was God. And so now we know that this Word in a face-to-face relationship with God is God, and they're both looking at each other. And this was what was going on, verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, notice what it says. All things came into being through Him. Now we know the Word is a Him. Apart from him, the word, nothing came into being that has come into being. So think about it. Let's put the pieces together. What are we hearing? We're hearing that the word always has been before ever there was creation. There was the word and this word is in a face to face relationship with God. We haven't been told about the spirit yet, but we know the spirits in the Bible. So we know there's a Trinity. That's a side note. But you've got the Word and you've got the Father, this, this God, and they're looking at each other from the, from the very beginning. And God himself creates not one thing apart from this Word. In fact, if you go look at what it says in Proverbs 8, it says that the Son was dancing and enjoying the presence of the Father all during the days of creation. If we put all the pieces together, we have a person who's a historical person, but he's a unique historical person because he existed before he was born. And he comes in human flesh through a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. This person is going to sit on his father's throne forever and ever, David, and he will be called the son of the Most High. What a backstory. 
And who is it? What is his name? Well, Joseph is told by the angel to call him Jesus. Mary's told by the angel to call him Jesus. And if you go look at John 117, John finally says the word's name is Jesus. So everybody's going right along with each other, right? This is what we learn. What's his backstory? Pre-existent person, person who's always existed, coming and putting on human flesh. And then there's one more set of statements. Now, as I was reading these 400 pages, I read this, I read this and these, this is what New, New Testament theologians uh, call the I have come statements. I've never thought about it like that. So we have the Joseph account, we have the Mary account, we have the John account. Now we have the I have come statements. Jesus, you remember, Jesus says things like that. He says, I have come. Remember that statement? Well, when Jesus says, I have come, he, he's answering two questions. He's telling us where he came from. He's telling us what he came to do. I have come. I have come. That's what Jesus says about himself. When angels come, angels come from the, from the throne room of God. They come with their assignments. They speak to Mary. They speak to Joseph. They tell Mary and Joseph exactly what it is and what's going to happen. And then they return back to the throne room of God and they wait for their next assignment. They don't walk around saying, I have come. But Jesus stands up and says, I have come. <laughs> Who talks this way? <laughs> Jesus does. Jesus talks this way. He tells us that he came from outside the world. He came into the world. He has a mission to complete. Why was Jesus born? What is Jesus' work? What is his mission? The I am come statements tell us. Here's three I am come statements. Mark two seventeen. See if this jogs your memory. Pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. Let this jog your memory. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. So Jesus comes to call sinners. Second, I have come statement. Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. For many, Jesus has come to save sinners and to give his life a ransom. For many. Third, I am come statement, Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. At Christmas time, if we would truly appreciate why Jesus came, we have to understand that he came outside the world and he came to people who are in a sinful condition. Jesus diagnoses our problems in these I am come statements and he tells us exactly why he had to come. He came to call sinners, not well, healthy people. He came to call people who are separated from him, not people who are in love with him. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He did not come to seek uh, those who are good, but those who are not good. The other day uh, I was reading, I've, I've I'm in a class right now because uh, your you know, organizing pastor has a, a reformed evangelism class. And so I was reading this book and uh, the writer of the book said, remember, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, no one is good except God alone. Oh, that's bad news. See, Jesus tells us something we don't want to hear. No one is good. I'm, I'm so glad that when we pray, 
I'm so glad when we pray that I don't hear, I don't see anybody um, flagging me. Nobody flags me when we pray this prayer. Um, we have offended against your holy laws. Uh, there's nothing good in us. We're miserable offenders. I haven't had anybody so far send up and say, Preacher, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't agree with that. Jesus says no one is good. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. No one righteous. No, not one. What's the problem? Sin's the problem. Rebellion against God and His law is the problem. And you and I, we by nature, we sin in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And we, if we want to enjoy Christmas, we have to enjoy why Jesus says He came. He came to call us and to save us from our sin. And that must be our testimony that we are not good. That we are commandment breakers. Now, I am going to do everything in my power to make sure we walk out of here understanding what it means for God to be angry with us for our sins. Preacher, you really mean that God's angry with me for my sins? Yes. But I think, how do do we feel this? How 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 can we get a feeling about this in my heart? Well, let me do the best I can. Let me, let me try to, to, to get in your mind an idea of being upset. I'm going to try to make you upset. When I was in the ninth grade, I played basketball. And, we, and you know, we all like games. We all like, we, when we play games, we want people to play games by the rules, don't we? We don't want anybody cheating that makes us upset when people cheat. We want people to play by the rules. And so here I am in the ninth grade. And not only do I want people to play by the rules, I want people to practice by the rules. And so I'm in the ninth grade, and all my guys on my basketball team, they all touch the lines. If you run lines, y'all know what lines are in basketball. You run to the free throw line, you run to the midcourt, you run to the free throw line, you run to the back line, you run all the way back every time, and you get all tired, and you sit there and wait again. The guy blows it, and you do another, another nine or ten of them every practice. Well, nobody in my ninth grade, not a single person ever, they, they all touched the lines. When I went to high school, I was on the basketball team with about 35 or 40 guys. They were all 30 or 40 pounds more than me. And I was, let me, I'll just tell you how it happened. I'm coming in second DL. Does anybody know what second DL means? Second to dead last. The coach, I remember walking around, walking around and he says, Mr. Weed, I've heard that you're one of the fastest men in Tyler, Texas, and you're coming in second DL. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I am, I'm coming in behind Chris Coulter, the slowest guy on the court. I'm having, to, I'm having to catch him at the end to beat him, and I'm second to last of all 40 guys. And so I began to watch all the other men, all the other young men run their lines. And I started noticing that Du Bois Johnson and Burdell Howland and all these guys who are much bigger than me, much they're not as fast as me, but not a one of them are touching the lines. And I'm just full of rage. They're not touching the lines. So now am I going to go tell the coach? Well, coach, Craig Udek over there that weighs 220 pounds, he ain't touching the lines. I weigh a buck fifty. He weighs two twenty. Am I going to go tell on that guy? Am I going to get killed after practice? Absolutely not. So I keep my mouth shut. But let me tell you what, I walked around every day mad. I was mad for people breaking the rules. You, have you ever felt angry when somebody didn't keep the rules? 
You do, but they don't. They passed go and monopoly and they took 201 or they took $400. They didn't take $200. They took 201. That's wrong. Foul. You didn't touch the line, friend. That's what I feel. I don't know about you. You, you were, you stepped out of bounds and the guy didn't call you out of bounds. You shouldn't get a touchdown. I'm upset about stuff like this. It really, it really eats me out when people don't compete according to the rules. Is that you? Well, think about it. Think about God. God is the one who's created us. God is the one who's given us Ten Commandments. God is the one who tells us to love Him perfectly in thought, word, and deed. He's the one who can tell us what to do. And we walk around and we step outside the bounds and He has the right to say, Foul! Do you feel this? <laughs> you got to know that God is angry with us for our sins in thought, in word, and deed. Oh, I just can't believe it, preacher. Believe it. He's the one who says, no, not 201, 200. He's the one who says, touch the lines, not cheat. <laughs> you're one of the fastest men in town, and you're coming in second deal. It hurt. God's wrath is against us, not for one little foul. God's wrath is against us for every single foul. Preacher, I just don't understand this. I'm, I'm really not that bad. Well, let me go at it one more time. I want to go at it one more time. I want to linger here a while because I, I'm sitting here. I'm thinking, how do we get this across? How do I get it across to myself? I live by the golden rule. I'm do pretty good. I'm on good speaking terms with God. Well, Jesus tells a story about a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee goes down and he's right down here at the front of the church. And he's talking to God and he's telling God all the things that he does. Tells God all the things that he doesn't do. He looks at the guy back in the back who's a tax collector and says, And I'm surely not like that guy back there who's beating on his breast. And he thinks that he's okay and chummy with God. And Jesus says, This guy's exalted himself. And he's going away. Not close to God. He thinks he's close to God. But he's not. Now let me ask you a few questions. Think about this. Am I close to God when God tells me to humble myself and I exalt myself? Am I close to God when God tells me I'm a sinner and I say I'm not so bad? Am I really close to God when I disagree over and over with his word? The people who are close to God are the ones who humble themselves and agree with Him about His Word. They say things like this, I am like everybody else. I am a sick person and I will humble myself in order to be justified and go home close to God. I will not exalt myself and go away far from God. This means, folks, if we can't say that we're sinful, that our sin, we have to understand that our sin deserves to be punished. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Your sins deserve a certain rate, a certain rate of payment. Every one of you guys know this. Uh, I'm, it's real simple. Evan went and worked in the orchard in California. He worked for Mr. DeBoer. He worked on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. I had to drive him over there, drop him off. I'd go over there and pick him up. He worked for $12 an hour. At the end of the week, 24 times 12. Evan was so excited. 
stuffed that cash in his pocket, came home. Some of us work for salaries. Some of us work by the hour. But we all get paid at the end of the week. We're all happy that money's in the bank. Other things have other wages. If you go and work, you receive wages. If you act up at home, what happens when you act up at home? You either get a spanking or you get a timeout or you get a privilege taken away. If you go and commit a misdemeanor, you get community service. If you commit a felony, you're going to go to prison. If you sin against God, the wages of sin is death. I think the thing that really bothers us about this is that we walk around free. We haven't violated the law of the land. We're still walking around free, and we tend to think that nothing's wrong. But the Bible tells us if we're not in Christ, we're under the wrath of God. The baby that grew up to be a man said this, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Jesus says of the day of judgment, I will say to the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Our only hope at Christmas time is to be saved from the punishment that our sins deserve. And the only way we can be saved from the punishment our sins deserve is to say, I have not touched the line. I took 201 instead of 200. I have broken the commandments. I deserve to be punished forever. And we despair of ourselves, as Luther said. We despair of ourselves and we repair to Jesus Christ, who's God's provision for us. One man wrote this. He said, we're like ships who've been created by God to go out and do His will, but we've sailed off in all directions doing whatever we wanted And this God of ours, He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness and in His justice. He's a judge who sits on the bench and He has to demand that justice and the wages of sin is death. He must mete justice out for every sin. Mr. Mr. Gardner and I were talking about the sins we know about and the ones we don't even know about. But the same Bible tells us that God is not only infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness and judgment. He's also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His love and mercy. Seems like God's on the horns of a dilemma. How are you going to get yourself off of that one? How are you going to go, go judge somebody guilty for their sins and give them death and at the same time be loving? How are you going to do that? Can you, have you figured that out? Lord, you're on the horns of a dilemma. Well, God's also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. And he can make justice and love kiss each other. And this is how he does it. He sends his son to do both things at the same time. Romans 5.8 tells us this. God demonstrates his own, his own peculiar love towards us, toward you. In that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. So love for the sinners and justice on Jesus. He does both at the same time on the cross. It all happens there. Demonstration of love, 
demonstration of justice, God is wholly just and wholly loving at one and the same time. Now, years ago, I think I was 31 years old, probably told y'all, some of y'all may have heard this before. I don't think I've preached. I think I've told people this in classes. But I've always used this in, in the new members class. But years ago, I read a story about a tribal chief, and everybody talks about the tribal chief being so ju- a just tribal chief. And he's also very merciful. This is a, I, I want to tell you all this story because I want you to be able to use it when you talk to your friends. But this tribal chief is just. This tribal chief is merciful. He's known for it. And there's a, there's a, there's a loaf of bread sitting in a window, and somebody steals the loaf of bread out of the window. And everybody's trying to figure out who took the loaf of bread. Day two, day three, day four, another loaf of bread is taken from somebody's window. Who is doing this? Who is the the criminal? Who's doing this? Do they not know that they will receive 39 lashes on the whipping post for this? Well, comes to find out it was the, come to find out it was the tribal chief's mother. And so everybody in town is sitting there going, what's what's our tribal chief going to do? If he pardons his mother, where's the justice? If he judges his mother and meets out all 39 lashes on her back, where's the love and where's the mercy? He's on the horns of a dilemma. How's he going to solve it? But the day comes and everybody comes. They want to see what their great, wonderful tribal chief is going to do. And he tells the man to tie his mom's arms to the whipping post. And so there she is exposed with her back exposed, hands tied to the whipping post. He tells the man with the whip to begin the punishment. And when the whip goes backwards, he puts his hands over her hands. He puts his back in between her back and the whipping, the man with the the whip. And he takes all 39 lashes on his own back. Both things are happening at one time. There's mercy to the mom. There's justice being meted out on the, tri- the tribal chief. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus comes. I have come from outside this world to be in this world. I have come to be the one who is whipped for your sins so that you might receive my righteousness received by faith. It all happens at one and the same time on the cross. What a story. What a backstory. We have a we have a God who has it all figured out. There's not anything he hadn't figured out for us. He we have a God who prepared and sent his son to save us from our sins. We have a God who sends Jesus who's with us and for us to come and call us to to bring us to himself so that we might be the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ by faith. What do we sing at Christmas? God and sinners reconciled. At Christmas, Jesus is the one who brings sinners and God together through his own shed blood in those years later on when he dies on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the the truth of your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate during this month his birth. But Lord, what a, what a glorious event we can, can bathe in today. To know that you and your Son and the Holy Spirit gathered together before eternal times and plotted out and planned to save a people for yourself. We thank you that you make us part of that people 
through faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, taking these truths and and writing them on our hearts and, and into our hearts and lives. May we walk away from this place with a fresh view of our Lord who died in our place, protected us from wrath, gave us love and mercy. May we walk out of this place filled with joy to live our lives for you. We'll praise you for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.